Remain standing for our second epistle lesson, which is also our sermon text from Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Again, give your ear to God's word. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and the way that it reveals him to us. Lord, be for us today the God of peace, and open your word to us by your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I want you to think about a situation in your life right now where you are worried or anxious or outraged or joyless. You might think of any number of obvious things that would cause someone to be worried or outraged or anxious or joyless. You might think of all the illness from the coronavirus or our country's political situation. You might have a very difficult situation at work. You might be thinking about the state of the church, the state of Christianity in our country. Get that situation in mind in which you are worried or anxious or joyless and ask yourself, is it possible to have peace or even joy in that situation? Again, we live in a time when it seems there are no shortage of things over which to be worried or outraged or joyless, but really, that's all of human history since the fall. Before the fall, everyone existed in a state of peace with God and with one another, with themselves. But after the fall, all of human history has had conflict, conflict between man and God, between one another, with ourselves, with nature even. Certainly the situation of the Philippians who originally received, received this letter were in a very similar, similar situation to ours, similar situation to all of history. You remember as we've been walking through the book of Philippians, that this letter is a response from Philippi sending, the church at Philippi sending Epaphroditus to visit Paul while he is in prison. And you can imagine when Epaphroditus gets to Paul in prison that they begin talking, and they begin talking about the situation of the church in Philippi. And Epaphroditus probably began with the general news, things are well, and the word is being preached, and the word is going forth, just as as when you left, but you know, there are problems, there are issues that we're dealing with. There is 
this persecution. You remember, Paul, how hostile the city was when you preached the gospel. You and Silas were thrown into prison and beaten, and the persecution is ramping up. Many of us don't know if we are going to lose our jobs or if it will be like the Roman, other places in the Roman Empire where we will be pressured into confessing Caesar as Lord. We don't know if we'll be able to continue to meet or where we will meet, perhaps. And you know, Paul, there is this matter of Iodia and Syntyche that is really beginning to cause conflict and fray the relationships in our church. They were in a situation that's a lot like ours today. And so it's no surprise that when Paul picks up his pen to write them this letter in response, he begins that letter with this. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He will spend the entire letter talking about his own joy, his own peace in the midst of trials. And he will hold up Christ We saw in chapter 2 as the ultimate example and ground of hope and faith and righteousness. He sets forth Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples. And when he comes now to chapter 4, and he is exhorting them to put into practice all of the theology that began with that sentence, grace to you and peace from God our Father. He gives them and us precious remedies for anxiety. Precious remedies for our anxiety, our lack of peace with God, with one another, with our community, and even within ourselves. He's coming to the point here in chapter 4. So let's look at what Paul tells us to do. The first thing he says, look at verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. We've seen how this theme of joy runs throughout the letter of Philippians. But what is distinctive about this particular mention of joy is that it's a command. It's an apostolic command, just like do not lie, do not steal, do not murder. Rejoice always. And that can strike us as unusual or even seem exasperating or downright impossible if we don't understand what Paul is asking us to do, what God is asking us to do, if we misunderstand what the command is. Paul is not commending or commanding to you an upbeat positivity. When he says rejoice always, it's not a a bumper sticker theology. It's not don't worry, be happy. Just grin and bear it. That's not what he means by rejoice always. And Paul also doesn't mean that everyone must have a very bubbly or chipper personality. There are all kinds of persons and personalities that God has made, and joy is possible for all of them. It does not mean that we never experience sadness or grief or loss. This can seem impossible if we have the understanding that our emotions, that our emotive life are like billiard balls, that they they necessarily displace one another. So that if you are feeling joy, you cannot feel sorrow, you cannot feel anger, you cannot feel grief. 
But that's not true at all. Paul himself sorrowed over Epaphroditus' nearly fatal illness in Philippians 2. He was sorry that Epaphroditus was ill. And we just talked last time about how he wept over those who behaved as enemies of the cross in chapter 3. So Paul, tears on his face, tells the Philippians to rejoice always, and he's not being a hypocrite. He told the Corinthian Christians that his life was one that was characterized by being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Biblical joy, as God commands it here, is compatible with the whole range, the whole spectrum of emotions that fit all the different situations that confront us. So how do you rejoice always? If it's none of those things, if it's, if it's not just grin and bear it, how do you rejoice also? The key is right there in the verse. Look at verse 4 again. Rejoice, he says, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a joy that is not based on our circumstances or even our direct willpower. It's, it's a joy that is based on the fact of our fellowship with Christ and the facts about Christ. What Paul is actually commanding here is a deep and abiding gladness over what you have in Jesus Christ in every circumstance. Paul is commanding a deep and abiding gladness over what you have in Christ in every circumstance. And so what do you have in Christ? Let's turn to what I think one of the, the clearest passages in scriptures that talk about this. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you have your Bible, you can turn through there. We're going we're gonna to walk through a portion of Ephesians chapter 1 too. What do you have to rejoice in, in Christ. Look at Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What do you have in Christ right now? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in your union with Jesus. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blame, without blame before Him. You have a destiny of being holy and before God, justified, vindicated, without blame or spot. In love, having predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, you have the adoption of of being God's child, being God's son, an heir with Christ, the eternal Son of God. To the praise of His glorious grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. You have accept, being accepted with God. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Cleansing, blood of Jesus. Freedom from every defilement. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both things 
which are in heaven, and things that are on earth in him. In him we have also obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You, sitting today, have an inheritance from God. You remember a a number of sermons ago, Pastor Sexton preached on our inheritance of a resurrected body and a new world in which righteousness dwells. You have an inheritance from God. That we who, were, who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of of his glory. God has put his very spirit to dwell in your heart as a guarantee of your resurrection from the dead and your life in a new world in which righteousness dwells, where you will have no sin, no defilement, no conflict. This is what you have today in Jesus Christ. This is what you have today in Jesus Christ in whatever circumstance you happen to find yourself in, in whatever circumstance you brought to mind just a few minutes ago. This is why Paul says that those who grasp this scriptural truth of what they have in Christ are able to rejoice even in their sufferings. He says in Romans 5, 1 through 3, we rejoice even in our sufferings, even in our trials. It's how Paul was able to put this into practice in the first chapter of Philippians. You remember in 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 Philippians 1, in 18 through 20, where he, he talks about, he asked the Philippians to rejoice with him that because Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. And he goes on to say that he does not know whether he will be delivered by their prayers to life or delivered by their prayers to death into the presence of Christ, but at any rate, Christ is preached, and in this he has joy. Paul's able to face down even his own possible death with joy because his mind is fixed on all of those blessings in Ephesians chapter 1 that he has and that you have in Christ. So what is that circumstance that you were thinking of? And what, what do you have in Christ in that circumstance? What are the blessings of the redemption of the blood of Christ, can you bring to mind in that circumstance? Could we think of some of the most extreme examples? When Paul says that we grieve, but, but not like those without hope. Even in the face of death, in Christ, do we not have hope in the resurrection, in a new world in which righteousness dwells? We do. In whatever circumstance you're in, you have all of these things in Christ. I've told you before about this quote from George Mueller who had an amazing prayer life, which I don't think is coincidental, an amazing prayer life and, and ran an orphanage in England. I'll read it to you again. He says, he says this, quote, I saw at this point more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy 
in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man may be nourished. I saw the most important thing I had to do was give myself to the reading of the Word of God and meditation on it. I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you. I want to challenge you even to take Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 13, and memorize it. Say it to yourself every day when you get up for like a month, and every day when you go to bed for like a month. Read it to yourself. If you have a lunch break, photocopy it, put it on something, put it in your pocket. And do what George Mueller said and make your primary business in whatever your circumstance is to make your soul happy in the Lord. This is one of the great remedies for peace that Paul gives us is to rejoice in the Lord always. And the way that we do that is by filling our minds constantly with what we have in Christ. And the next thing that Paul tells us to do is in verse 5. Look at that. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. Let your gentleness be known to all men. And this speaks to our peace as it relates to other people. First one, we have joy in the Lord. We have peace with the Lord. This one speaks to our, our peace with other people, doesn't it? And the key word in that verse is, is gentleness. Let your gentleness be made known to all men. And it's a very, uh, a very difficult word to translate, a very one, difficult one to bring over into English. You have almost as many different um, versions of it as you do, or translations of it as you do versions. There's gentleness, reasonableness, moderation, forbearance, graciousness, modesty. What is he getting at when he says, let your gentleness be known to all men? The word has to do with temperance in judgment. It's being the kind of person who does not place an emphasis on what you're owed. It's a temperance in judgment, an understanding of righteousness and what is required in situations, but a refusing to press your own rights to the max. The opposite of this would be, um, you know, you don't want to be someone like Shylock, right, who is, who is going to get your pound of flesh because you are owed your pound of flesh. That would be the opposite of what Paul is asking us to do here. And you can see how this command is connected to the one to rejoice in the Lord. Those whose joy is in the Lord are going to treat others very differently than those whose joy is found primarily in their circumstances being favorable and going well. Right? If, if my joy is primarily found in, my circumstances need to be going well for me and you're getting in the way of that, I might not treat you with the most gentleness. I might not treat you with the most forbearance or temperance. But those who have joy in Christ are free to be gentle to other people. And Christ, of course, is the ultimate example of this quality. We saw this in Philippians chapter 2. Who being in the very form of God, did not count his equality, his rights, as God, something to be clutched, to be grasped at. But he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And he came and he served you and me by taking 
our sins upon himself in going all the way to the cross, dying for our sins. And therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. If you want an example of someone who is temperate, someone who is gentle in the way that Paul says, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we read in the very beginning of our service today. The Lord said, I am gentle and lowly at heart. But Paul gives us another reason for this quality. In verse 5, he says this, Let your gentleness be made known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. That's the reason you can see that, connect that back. Be gentle, let your gentleness be known. Why? The Lord is at hand. But in what sense is the Lord at hand? Pretty often in the New Testament, that, that phrase, the Lord is at hand, has to do with the judgments of God or the second coming of Christ. And you know from where we sit in history that the next great eschatological event, the next great event in redemptive history will be the second coming of Christ, whenever that is. Even if it's thousands of years from now, the Lord is at hand because it is the next thing that is going to happen. And we know that when the Lord comes, he will come in judgment. He will right every wrong and dry every tear. He says in Revelation 21, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. This is what Jesus is coming to do. So we must not be anxious to obtain the retribution or the justice that we feel we are entitled to completely in this life. The Lord himself will judge all evildoers and anybody who has wronged us and not in Christ here because everyone then will have to stand before Christ. So do not feel as though you must have immediate revenge for every wrong. Paul told the Christians in Rome, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When the Lord returns in judgment and in great glory, you will have in its fullness all of those blessings that you have in Christ that we just read and spoke about in Ephesians 1. All of those blessings that we read about in Christ, which you have the down payment of now, you will have perfectly and completely then. And historically speaking, that's like tomorrow. Right? The Lord is at hand. Even if you slug it out and live to be 110 in the grand scheme of things, that's a very short time period. Your blessing, the fullness of your blessings in Christ are coming tomorrow. Have you ever, have you ever talked to a little kid whose birthday is tomorrow? How excited is that kid? Right? Do you, do you remember in, um, was it announcement, announcements and prayer? Was it Michael or RJ? Somebody raised their hand and said, my, I'm excited. My birthday is only four years from now. <laughs> right? Maybe that was a prayer request. <laughs> the Lord is coming. 
and your vindication draws near. Give place to wrath. Brethren, give place to wrath. But the Lord is near to us in another sense. Peter says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. Or again, the Psalms say, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to us when we suffer unjustly. So let these thoughts create in you a spirit of gentleness. Christ will soon return and he will exalt your humility and show mercy to the merciful. Let your, let your gentleness be known to all men, he says. This is to characterize us as a people toward one another, but even those who are outside of the church, even in a hostile environment, just like the, the saints in Philippi found themselves in under persecution. We have to ask ourselves, what are we known for? As a person, what am I known for? What do I want to be known for? What do I want our church to be known for? Paul says here, let your gentleness be known to all men. Finally, Paul says, beginning in verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious for nothing. This can also seem like an impossible task, just like verse 4. If we take Paul to mean a certain kind of stoicism that's immune to the circumstances of life. Be anxious for nothing. Be made of steel. Let nothing affect you. Don't grieve. Don't sorrow. Don't think anything is a big deal. That's not what he means. The person who is rejoicing in the Lord and knows that the Lord is at hand is not going to be an anxiety-riddled person. But neither does Paul mean that we aren't to have natural concern for our own welfare or especially for the welfare of others. Right? He's, all, he's already held up Timothy in this letter as an example of someone who has care. It's the exact same word. Care, anxiety for the saints at Philippi, for their spiritual good. What he's talking about is an undue anxiety and distrust of God and his providence that our Lord talked about in Matthew 6 when he said this, Therefore I say to you, do not worry, same word, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not, not life more than food and the body more than clothing? An undue anxiety about our welfare, about the things of this life, what's the antidote in this verse? What's the antidote that Paul gives We just read it in verse 6. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I said before that joy and sorrow can coexist with one another. Right? They're not like they're not like fire and water. But this sort of worry and anxiety and a believing and fervent prayer life really do displace one another. They cannot exist together. Look at that, again, look at that kind of prayer that we are exhorted to. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Prayer is that general word for for coming into God's presence. This gets rid of our anxiety just like when a child comes into the presence of their 
loving Father, and they know that He's here and that He's got it taken care of and everything's going to be all right. Prayer is coming into the very presence of God. Supplication is spreading our needs before Him, detailing our situations and our anxieties, just like we see the psalmist doing. Having coming, come into God's presence and worshipped Him and, and spent time with Him, we open up our needs before Him honestly and tell Him what we are thinking, what are we feeling, and we make specific requests to Him. Not because God doesn't know what, what we need or what our requests are, but because He asks us to so that He can relate with us, so that He can answer our prayers, so that we can know that He hears us. This is exactly what first, or Peter describes in First Peter when he says, Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And then finally, he tells us to give our prayers, our supplications, our requests with thanksgiving. And this really is the key ingredient in believing prayer. Because a demeanor of gratitude recognizes that God is good and gracious even in those situations that may induce anxiety. Gratitude, being able to say thank you to God for his presence, for his goodness, even for the circumstance, recognizes by necessity that God is good, even in those circumstances. It is the heart that believes, Romans 8, that God is working all things, whatever they might be, for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. This kind of prayer opens our hearts, not only to listing our needs, but also praising him for all that he is and all that he's done for us. So often, we feel like Paul's Paul's injunction here doesn't work because we say, I prayed, and I don't feel any better. I prayed, and I'm still anxious about it. I prayed, and I'm still worried about it. But it's, it's quite the indictment of our prayer lives to realize that much of the praying that we do it seems, is really just listing our needs out to God, just worrying, but we're doing it on our knees, saying, um, oh Lord, please hear my worries, in Jesus' name, amen. Having a heart of gratitude guards against that kind of prayer. And when we have that kind of prayer, we have a wonderful promise. Look at verse 7. If we pray to God with supplication and thanksgiving, letting our requests being made known, Here's what he promises. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds, all of your inner being, that is, through Christ Jesus. He speaks about the peace of God as though it were a military garrison, a detachment of soldiers. The Philippians would have known about the, about the Pax Romana. They were a, a, a Roman colony. There would have been a detachment of soldiers there to guard the city. Paul's saying that God's very peace will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. If you've ever experienced this peace, you know exactly what he's talking about. I've I've maybe experienced this a handful of times in my life. But I I can tell you about one when, when Rachel and I were in school and I think just engaged at the time. We had a friend... Uh, named Allison, a, a couple, Craig and Allison. And Allison was diagnosed with cancer. And by the time that she knew that she had cancer, she had a mass in her abdomen 
that was about the size of a softball. And we got together to pray for her regularly. And um, in one of these times, uh, praying with Rachel and I, praying together with, with her roommates, we were praying for Allison. And we did exactly what Paul is describing here. We entered into God's presence, praised him for his goodness, his kindness in Christ, thanked him for the redemption that we have in his blood, and we spent time with him. And we laid out all of our concerns for Allison, and we asked that God would heal her, and that God would remove her cancer. And it was amazing, as we prayed, to look up and look at one another and say, what an incredible calm. Do you feel that? And everyone's looking at each other, yeah. And what was amazing about the moment is, was that it wasn't as if we knew that Allison was healed or no longer in danger or didn't have cancer. We didn't know how things were going to turn out. And it wasn't as if we couldn't think about her. But what was amazing about the moment was we could think about her in the hospital there in Houston, and it was as if feelings of anxiety about that fact were impossible. I'm going to try to be anxious about this, and I just can't. The detachment of God's peace guarding a heart and a mind in Christ. So often we get that backwards, and we, we reason that if we can just think this issue through, if we can just figure it out, then we'll have peace. It's not the way that it works. And you, you know this, and I know this, and I'll, I'll also admit to the intense irony of studying and, and reading to prepare to preach this sermon and be thinking about all of the circumstances <laughs> going on in our life with illness and family and friends. And, you know, so often it's more, if I can just think this through, I'll figure it out and I'll have peace, and that's not the way that it works. The hopeful thing is that in chapter 4, coming up soon, Paul says that he's learned contentment, that this is something that you can grow in. It's not a switch that is flipped, but as we walk the salvation that God is working in us, the Holy Spirit can produce this kind of prayer in this peace in us. I don't know if you noticed, but all of these all of these things that Paul is commanding us to, joy, gentleness, peace, these are the fruit of the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit working this in you. There's great hope that as we walk, as we obey, the Spirit will produce this thing in us. And all of this points to the fact that our worrying, our grasping, our joylessness, are not things that naturally arise out of whatever our difficult circumstances happen to be, but instead are sins of the mind and heart in the way that we handle whatever our circumstances might be. But the good news of the gospel is that we can offer these sins to Jesus Christ just as we offer any other sin to Jesus. He will forgive us and cleanse us. And every day we have another opportunity to work out the salvation that God is working into us. We can fill our minds with what we have in Christ. We can remind ourselves of the Lord's nearness 
for those who are crushed in spirit. We can pray, entering into God's presence and laying out our needs and thanking him for his goodness in all things. As you obey God in these ways and the fruit of the spirit is produced in you, you will find that you have peace with God, peace with one another, and even peace within your own heart in whatever circumstances you happen to be in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the peace of Christ, and we thank you that you are the God of peace and the God of all glory. We pray that you would work this in us and all of the fruit of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.